Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Sociology on the New Books Network. We are Ellis Jones, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts. And Jerry Lemke, Emeritus Professor of Sociology at Holy Cross. Our guest for this edition is Leah Cohen, and we'll be talking with her about her newest novel entitled No Book But the World. It's a work of fiction with themes on education and learning philosophy that we think make it a perfect fit for course syllabi on sociology of education learning theory, and those wonderful, if all too rare, offerings on sociology of fiction or sociology through fiction. I'm actually teaching one of those courses in the fall. It's sociology through science fiction called Utopian and Dystopian Worlds. Leah also wrote the highly acclaimed The Grief of Others, the nonfiction Glass Paper Beans, along with, as far as we know, at least seven other books, including both fiction and nonfiction. Currently, Leah is the Jenks Chair of Contemporary American Literature at Holy Cross, and we are very pleased to be with her for the next 50 minutes. Leah, you begin your novel, No Book But the World, with an epigraph from Rousseau. Can you tell us what that epigraph is and why you chose it? Yes. Um... The epigraph is, let there be no book but the world. And the full quote is, let there be no book but the world and no instruction other than fact. And that's from Rousseau's Emile, or a treatise on education. Um, and I chose it because it, it figures centrally in the novel. Mm-hmm. Rousseau's very 18th century um, Besides just these uh, these intriguing words to use, what do you think Rousseau has to say to us today in the 21st century about education? Um, you might even want to comment on gender, uh, since he had many of his ideas on education were very uh, gender-loaded, gender very gendered ideas. Can you say a little bit more about about Rousseau and and uh, you know? what your interest might be. Right. So maybe it would help to tell you how I first um, came to hear of Rousseau. I'm not a scholar. Um, I've, I've never studied sociology or philosophy or um, really most disciplines in a formal way. Um, so I came by Rousseau when I was 18 and I was uh, working at sort of a a summer camp slash summer school, and um, and the one of the greatest things about working at this program was meeting the other staff members. It was this really vibrant, energetic group of young people, college students, um, studying in all different disciplines. And I remember one evening, you know, one summer evening, taking a walk with with these you know, comrades, these colleagues, and this one guy I remember explaining about Rousseau. And as he put it, 
Um, you know, and he, 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 he was sort of extrapolating, I think, from Emile and coming up with his own example. Um, because then many years later, I read Emile and I didn't quite find this example. But he said, what Rousseau thought was, for example, you shouldn't give a kid an apple and say, this is an apple, it's a piece of fruit, you can eat it. What Rousseau believed was you should give a kid an apple and say nothing and let the kid experience the apple herself, right? You know, and sort of smell it and feel it and toss it in the air and bite into it and all of this. And this, you know, the, the, the empirical discovery of life, um, through, as I just said, experience rather than through formal instruction. Mm -hmm. And so as soon as I heard, you know, about this guy Rousseau and that that's what he believed in, um, it clicked with me and it made me think of A.S. Neal, who was a figure I did know of while I was growing up. Um, and, And so years later when this book began to take shape for me, um, A.S. Neal and Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, were sort of two important um, guides. Mm-hmm. I thought when you when you said summer camp and summer school that there might be some connection with Summer Hill, <laughs> <laughs> the free school movement. Yeah. Yeah, and, and there you go. The connection <laughs> is there. Maybe we can take that into talking more specifically about your book. Um, Fred is one of your characters. Ava is one of your characters. Um, Their parents are important. There's a lawyer uh, in your book. Can you tell us briefly about each of those? Uh, And um, then maybe that provides us with a good introduction to the book, and then we can talk about some other things. Sure. Um, So the main character and the principal narrator is Ava, this young woman, and she's telling a story involving her brother, Fred, and even though the story is set when they're young adults, um, an awful lot of the book uh, pulls back into Ava's memories of their childhood. Um, And so we learn a lot about their unconventional childhood. Their parents were um, educators who ran a free school modeled after the real-life Summerhill that A.S. Neal founded um, and ran in England. Um, And Ava and Fred grew up on the grounds of the school after it was no longer running, um, but with their parents um, allowing them and encouraging them to sort of live fully uh, the life of Rousseau's hypothetical Emile, you know, um, kids whose learning is all self-directed and experiential rather than uh, in the form of formal pedagogy. Um, and you mentioned the lawyer, the lawyer, so maybe it would be helpful if I just say when the book opens, Ava has learned that Fred is being held in jail. He's suspected um, of a crime um he was the last person to see alive a young boy who has been found dead in the woods with signs of abuse on his body. And so Ava is sort of uh, hurtling toward Fred, um, who's being held in this small town in upstate New York, to with the belief that she alone might be able to 
reconstruct the story of what happened from Fred and then explain to everybody else, to the world, um, who her brother is and that he's not monstrous. Would you mind actually uh, picking a passage and, and reading it for us? I'd love to hear it in your own words, unless you have one memorized. Sure. Um, maybe, maybe I would read from the scene where um, Ava's been trying unsuccessfully to get into the jail to see Fred, um, and then she finally does see him. And, and this scene is actually, it's written in the third person from, from Fred's perspective. The man said, get up, you have a visitor. He figured it would be the lawyer again, who came yesterday, but they went down a different hall, and the man brought him to a different room. Instead of one table and two chairs, this one had a bunch of tables and a bunch of chairs, and a lot of people sitting at the different tables. Not just men in greens, but women and some kids, too. Some of the people were wearing regular clothes, like skirts and sweatshirts. Some were dressed fancy. One woman was wearing a red dress and sharp red shoes, like she was going to a fancy restaurant. He was standing there just looking at some babies, and there were people talking Spanish and people talking English and people talking something else he didn't know what. And one man and woman, they were both crying and neither of them using any tissues, just their sleeves. It was funny seeing all these different kinds of people after days of having everybody be a man and everybody dress the same, either in blue uniforms, weighed down with buttons and badges and zippers and snaps, all that sharp, shiny metal that made you blink, or else, like him, in these loose green pants and loose green shirts that hung off you and smelled of cooked peas, and these black rubber sandals that weren't his either. Where were his shoes? He couldn't remember. He was blinking his eyes, looking around the bright fluorescent room, searching for the lawyer. He remembered the lawyer from yesterday, or maybe the day before. A tall, sit-up straight man with little glittering eyes in his big doe face that hung in folds around his neck. The man who brought him in said, Don't see your visitor? And he shook his head no, but then he saw her. His throat went clink, like he was a metal bank and someone had stuck a big coin through the slot. He had never called Ava because her number was in the little book back at Dave's house on the Cape, and he didn't know how she'd figured out where he was or what happened or how to find him or anything. He didn't know how she'd gotten herself here or how she could have known to come, but Ava always knew stuff he didn't know. Seeing her made him feel happy and scared. He started to rub his hands on the side of his pants. She was wearing a sweater that was brown and pants that were gray. Some birds were brown and gray, and he wanted to tell her, Hey, you look like one of those birds. But he saw that she had seen him now, too, and her eyes went all tilty like a roof that was too steep. She started to stand up, and the man behind him said, just like he was cracking a stick over his knee, Ma'am! And she sat back down, and the man said, That your visitor? And he nodded, and the man said, You go sit over there. Remember, no touching. Oh, that was wonderful. Nice. You know, um, I noticed that two of your books have been turned into audiobooks. And I was wondering if you had ever considered reading your own books 
in audio form for your readers? Yeah, I am. I love to read out loud, and I also love to be read too. I love hearing people's voices, you know, animate the stories. Um, I've I've not been invited <laughs> to record one of my books, but maybe someday. Hmm. You know, I've also noticed that um, in a lot of your work, you hearken back to childhood. And I was wondering, now that you look back, can you identify some of the first moments in which you can now, seeing your younger self, identify that those were the moments that started you on the path to being a writer? I do know that the impulse to tell stories and also just play with words I started very young, before I could write. Um, my mother would write down stories and poems that I made up orally. Um, so that that was there so far back that I can't really trace it to a source. You know, it just seemed to be there from the beginning. Do you still have any of those? I have some. Yeah, there's one little notebook that my mom kept um, for me that I still have. Yeah. But I... I do think that really in all my books, the fiction and the nonfiction, a preoccupation that shows through is a sense that storytelling is for connecting with those that we might naturally perceive as being other. Mm. Um, and I and I do see, I mean, my childhood was a, a, um, was a little bit, unusual in how much otherness it contained in that um, I'm hearing, but I grew up at a school for the deaf. Um, My nuclear family is racially mixed, um, and my father is Jewish, my mother was Protestant. Um, So there were, you know, even within our our sort of traditional family structure, um, there was this sense of otherness and 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 commonality uh, between between groups that are often seen as distinct um, so that that aspect of my childhood I think has um, continued into my writing I saw a quote actually um, earlier that you had said I love novels and short stories and poetry I started when I was very little. I named my fingers, and they had personalities and dialogue and character. The elements of theater and narrative took hold of my imagination before I could write. And so I was, I was curious. Do you still remember your fingers' names? (laughs) They, they were made up names. Um, I, I, I remember um, Chula and Sarsi, and you know they had these, yeah, nonsense names. I guess maybe all names could be could be heard as nonsense names. Yeah, I wonder if we can rename our fingers as we go. <laughs> Since we make them up, that's a lovely they idea. Become, they become different <laughs> yeah. as we go through life. Uh, uh, your your question, uh, Ellis's question about um, uh, reading your work uh, as well as writing your work um, leads me to ask about different roles. Um, the role of 
of you as as reader. You, you said you would like to read. You like to read, um, and maybe read your own your own material. There's two other roles that you have: one as author, one as book critic. Uh, you do a lot of uh, a lot of criticism for the in the New York Times specifically, which is where your books are also um, reviewed. Um, I'm wondering about those two roles and what your thoughts are on those two different roles. Um, and which, which of those roles do you think is most influential in American literary culture? Maybe it comes down to if you really had to be one or the other and only, which one do you think is the most efficacious, maybe in general, but also for yourself? Wow, that's such a tough question. Um, it's tough because I think being a critic um, in in some ways seems clearly to be the most efficacious in terms of participating in a public conversation. And there's something really um, exciting and vital about being part of the conversation, whether it's little kids getting to draw a table, a chair up to the grown-up's table and participating in that conversation, or whether it's as an adult, you know, being um, offered a seat at the table of public discourse, right? It's, um, and I don't kid myself that my, that my own work, that my, my novels and nonfiction books um, are are, are very widely read. You know, I, I don't. I don't think that um, they would be missed <laughs> if I weren't publishing. Um, not to say that my criticism would be missed, um, but at least with the criticism, I feel like I'm. I'm in dialogue with other people um, who are excited to think about and discuss books. That said, if I had to choose one, because. You, the the second part of your question was you know which feels the most vital to me um i would i would certainly choose if i had to to uh to to stop writing criticism um if that's what it took to keep inventing to keep creating stories and ideas with words and i'll say too i don't I don't regard, even though I love to read and I love to write, I don't regard literature as, um, there's nothing, I don't idealize the written word. I think the written word is the best tool that, that I have to be, to sort of play, to be part of this activity that we get to do while we're here on earth, which is sort of playing with the stuff of life and with how we can grow. Mm -hmm. um, but I, the only reason I'm a writer is because that's the, the tool that makes sense to me to get to do this other thing that really exists beyond words. It actually, uh, just to, I just want to remind our, our, our uh, listeners that we're speaking with Leah Cohn. Uh, she's the author of the new novel, Notebook But the World, uh, which is published by Riverhead Books. I was going to ask, uh, now that we're talking about uh, these dual roles and dual worlds, I was interested, by my count, you have five books in the world of fiction and five in nonfiction, 
And to a certain extent, you almost seem to alternate back and forth. And I was wondering, what do you find satisfying about publishing in each of those worlds? What does it do for you? Well, a little confession is that I I always wanted to write fiction, and I never really dreamed of writing nonfiction until I found myself doing it. Um, I, but I, I learned rather late how how exciting and transporting narrative nonfiction could be. As a child, it was always fiction that did the job of transporting me. Um, to that it, to that point, though, you know, once I sort of cottoned on to the fact that storytelling is storytelling, I think in some ways I don't um, I don't feel that my nonfiction and my fiction are serving very different roles in my life. Um, I guess I have a big appetite to experiment with form, you know, and so in that regard, to write only fiction and never get to um, tell true stories would feel would feel like a bit of a loss and vice versa. Um, but in many respects, I feel like what it is that I'm trying to do with my books is the same, whether I'm writing fiction or nonfiction. Well, we're certainly interested in the sociology that comes out of out of your books. And uh, as I said in the introduction, sociology of education, learning theory, there's plenty of stuff on, on gender um, relations uh, that come out of your books. Uh, but I'm also thinking that there might be something else that you have in mind that you want your readers to come come away with, something else that you're trying to connect on. And um, I'm wondering how you would complete the sentence, I really hope readers come away with blank. What goes in that, what goes in that blank for you? Hmm. I really hope readers come away with a sense of having been altered by by virtue of their own openness to interacting with the ideas in the book. I've come to realize that for me, what has to happen to make the writing process feel successful is that I have to remain open to being shifted, changed by it. Um, and more and more, I have come to speculate that books that are written, literature that's written in, in this way, where the writer is open to and as a result experiences change, during the process of creating the book, I've begun to speculate as to whether those books tend more often to create a similar experience of expansion, shifting, growth, reversal, questioning, whatever, um, within the reader. And so that's that's the experience that um, that I crave and that I hope to be passing on. Mm-hmm. Going back to, to Rousseau <laughs> for a minute and, and the title of your book, No Book But the World, 
is there any irony in, <laughs> in the fact that you write books, right? Uh, and um, you choose that title for your book. Um, and presumably there's some message there that the world is, is its own book. Yes. And um, I, I, Rousseau literally said, right, I, uh, did he not, that, that education without books, that, that books were a problem or something to that effect. Yeah, yeah. He's quite <laughs> disparaging of books yeah, in yeah. Emile. It's true. Yeah. Did you, is there anything to be reconciled there <laughs> <laughs> between the book writer and uh, a world without books? You know, um, when I was writing Glass Paper Beans, which was my, my second nonfiction book, I remember actively, it's, it's very important to me to be irreverent toward myself as a writer and toward the process. And, and the way that irreverence expressed itself during the writing of that book was um, I kept saying to myself and out loud, I don't really know if this is supposed to be a book. You know, maybe this is really supposed to be a, an interpretive dance <laughs> or a watercolor or, um, you know, I, I didn't want to be, um, I didn't want to be too fixed on the idea that, you know, well, the proper way to express what it is I'm hoping to express with this book is through literature. Um, and yeah, I think similarly, this is this sort of willingness to consider breaking the rules or breaking the form. Um, right, there's almost this built-in joke with no book but the world in titling the book <laughs> that um, and and in maybe inviting all of us to think about um, whether there are other um, more robust and fluid ways of getting at some of these ideas and experiences. You know, uh, I think Jerry and I have both noticed that there might be a little bit of an anarchist streak in your writing. And so I am honored. <laughs> so uh, I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit about your anarchist tendencies, both in writing, but also maybe a story in the real world. I and I will say I'm not. I don't. I'm. I'm trying on that word. You know, anarchist. I. I don't know if that applies. It may, but certainly. Um, vigorous questioning and sort of um, contrarian kind of irreverence, you know, all of that I'll, I will gladly um, own. Um, yeah, in the real world, you know, I had, um, I went to a communist summer camp, I went on lots of marches in Washington, I um, still danced at protests and in Nicaragua, um, you know, performing for Sandinista soldiers at the front. Um, I, you know, I certainly do have, I, I guess I feel that I was blessed to grow up with parents who, um, who had, who, who wished to introduce to their children a sense of expansiveness in how we regarded the world and our place in it, um, and taking, taking little of the fixed 
you know, mainstream sort of certainties of our society, um, you know, not taking those as um, gospel. The New York Times reviewer of your book, I think, referred to some of the anarchistic qualities in it. I think it was in the last paragraph, um, which caught my eye, uh, which also caught my eye. It was a very positive review. Uh, she used words like perceptive, empathetic, gripping, intriguing, and alluring. Um, she also was critical of what she called a creative writing e style. That's all one phrase. Speaking of creative writing, I've never seen that phrase. Um, I'm wondering what you thought of that uh, when you when when you when you read that. Yeah. Um it's interesting because she gave she followed that criticism up with um, a, a pretty ample list of examples of the kinds of phrases that she objected to, um, and I you know and I went over that list of phrases to see if in retrospect I would cringe. Oh, I can't believe I said that. You know, <laughs> um, and I I didn't really have a problem. <laughs> you know, I, one of them was redly silly. And it's maybe, maybe this is what you mean by anarchist. So to me, I understand that redly silly, you know, if I were in grade school and I handed that in, in a paper, it's likely the teacher would, you know, there would be some red ink on that page explaining about grammar. <laughs> um, and, and to me, playing with what words can do if it gets us closer to the true expression of what we feel. Um, to me, that feels like an important thing to allow ourselves to do rather than... So if what she was objecting to were, were certain breaches of conventional grammar and syntax, um, I then I... I don't regret that I um, <laughs> that I made those breaches. You, you, you plead guilty with, I with plead honor. I plead guilty with honor. <laughs> one of uh, one of the scenes in your book that you described is um, when Ava's car becomes stuck on a muddy road, and a fellow stops to help her and pushes, gets behind the car. It's a rear wheel driven car, and he gets behind and he pushes the car out, and and then. Um, you describe him, or she, I guess it's her voice, describing him as looking Jackson Pollocked. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> After pushing the, the car out, and, and your review, the reviewer did not like that no. that phrase, and I loved it. Uh, and, and I thought, well, you know, she probably knows who Jackson Pollock is and what a paint a Jackson Pollock painting looks like, but she's probably never stood behind a car on, <laughs> on a muddy road <laughs> and, and pushed it out and, and realized that that's, I think that's a perfect expression. I just really liked it. Uh, well, I liked it when I read it. I liked it when I read it. It really caused me to stop and kind of smile and think about that. And and then to see that in the review as something that the reviewer didn't like made me kind of smile again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will say, I think you... Sometimes I think I can tell when a writer is straining 
to come up with interesting descriptions. Sure. And certainly, I would I would not plead guilty with honor to that. I mean, I I I don't ever want to be overreaching or straining to sound writerly, but when but when uh, idiosyncratic turns of phrase um, occur naturally. Um, then, then you know, I think that's. I mean, there's this line from King Lear that I love: um, "Speak what we feel, not what we ought to say." And and when I'm when I'm at my most sort of natural, fully realized self as a writer, that's what I feel is coming through, um, and what I hope is coming through to the reader. You know, I um, I keep hearing a kind of transformation through creativity theme as you speak. And I'm wondering if we go back to talking about the process of writing and what you hope your readers hear. It makes me think of Lewis Hyde's The Gift. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, what is the gift that you give yourself when you write? And then what is the gift that others receive? Particularly the former, though. What is the gift for yourself? To me, there's, I think, no more pleasurable feeling than being able to receive and and take what it is that I'm receiving um, and interact with it very much as a child would in a in a state of seriousness and playfulness um, and and make something of the material I have received and then send what I have made forth into the world um, and so I don't I, I guess I realize I, I'm speaking abstractly and I don't mean to be obscure, but to me the experience of creative writing, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, is that experience of receiving, of receiving ideas and stories and you know, inspiration, if you will. Um, and then spending time interacting with that stuff. And and then letting it go, sending it on its way again. Um, that's just the best. <laughs> um, yeah. And the and the second part of the question was um, the, the gift to others, the gift to your readers. I mean, you've already mentioned a little bit of about how you'd like the experience of reading to alter them in some way. I guess the way I would like the experience to alter them is by readers picking up this thing, this little, you know, paper boat or origami crane. You know, I often I often see it metaphorically as this little flimsy paper object <laughs> that I've sent out into the world. For for readers to be altered not because there are instructions on this little origami crane, you know, that alter them, but because they pick it up and sort of maybe unfold it and fold it back together a different way. Um, but in other words, that, that this gift in Lewis Hyde's sense, this gift that I open myself up to receiving, spending time with, and then recirculating, that, that readers too will pick it up 
as something that they might exercise some agency over, or they might simply open themselves up to experiencing um, something that is their own, their own individual experience um, that, that arises from that little paper object I set out into the world. Mm. The, the reference to the little paper object, the, the origami. There's a there's a lot of um, there's a lot of craft references in the things you write. Certainly, the book beans, glass <laughs> yeah. paper, right. glass paper beads or beans, beans, beans. <laughs> yeah. I I when I I, I love that that uh, that book uh, um, because I have a little bit of background in sociology of work and labor. And um, I grew up in a working class family and um, have some of those same appreciations. And in, in the new book, no book, but the world, your, your latest novel, um, there's, a, there's a carpenter yeah. in that. And when I was reading, another smile came to my face. There's Leah Cohn again writing about a craftsman <laughs> right? and, a, and a craft worker. I think that's wonderful. Where does it come from uh, in your own? There must be something in your own background that that um, that's coming out there. Yeah, I don't know. What comes to mind is um, I grew up without religion, so my dad was, um, you know, Jewish but secular, and and my mom had grown up in a Protestant household, but was not at all religious by the time she had kids. And, um, and I remember when I was 18 coming home from college and seeing this little slip of paper that she had thumbtacked to the bulletin board that said, um, to labor is to pray. St. Thomas Aquinas. And oh, I, I and I was like, Mom, <laughs> are you what is it? Are you religious? Like are, do you believe in God? And and um, you know, and I, I at age eighteen began to learn about um my mother's even though she was not part of any organized religion, um, had a very strong sense of um spirituality but also spiritual questioning was just important to her, I think, on a daily basis, interacting with questions about about that piece of our existence. Um, but, but, I, but that particular quote, the idea that, look, I mean, I think creative work is akin to, if not synonymous with prayer, right? You know, I mean, it's the same stuff. It's the same thing. And then the idea that to labor is to pray, you know, and, and it's so easy when you're a writer, you guys know this, it's so easy to just spend so much time in one's head. Um, and it's, and I think that's highly problematic. <laughs> and I think handwork, you know, whether it's changing diapers or washing dishes or making paper craft or gardening or baking bread, whatever it is, is I feel it physiologically, I feel it to be spiritually important. Um, so, I mean, I think that I had never thought about that point. I think it's lovely that you see little echoes of craft and handcraft in the books that I've written. Yeah, in all of them, yes. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of the, uh, the name of your blog, Love as a Found Object, mm. again with that theme. And so how have you found playing with that form? 
the blog forum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So play is really the operative word there. Uh, one thing I told myself when I began this blog um, was that I would sit down to write an entry and I would click publish or whatever it is you click um, before I got up out of my chair again. In other words, I wouldn't labor um, too much on polishing it and bringing an idea through to fruition. And this idea of sort of finished product would not be part of the blog. It would be more like a sandbox, you know, to get in and dig around and play with my shovel and pail. Um, and then I would I would set forth into the world um, unfinished pieces. And so this the idea of allowing myself to play in a somewhat public forum and focus more on process and play than on product um, felt really wonderful. And have you had much response from readers online? Yes, over the it's I kept it for 6 years pretty regularly and then um for 2 years now it's been much more sporadic. Um but times when I've been really active with it, um I've had a, a steady little stream of commenters and responders um which has which has felt like evidence of this of the gift being in circulation. We're talking with um Leah Cohen, author of No Book But the World, her newest novel published by Riverhead Books. I, sh- I guess I should say we have been talking uh, with, with Leah. Um, we have about five minutes left. Want to give us something um, something good to end with? Well, I, um, I'm wondering, are there any projects that you have kept in the back of your head that have seemed too far-fetched or too challenging for you to take on, but are kind of fantasy or dream projects that just kind of linger in the back of your mind? Is it that you, as you come up with each project, you dive in, or are there still projects that you've considered that you've never quite had the gumption to wrestle with? (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, that sounds so inviting. You know, listening to your question makes me think, oh, what what would that be? You know, something that if only I were to get the gumption, I could dive something in. Something with hammer and nail. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, well, I will tell you, I'm I'm working on a project right now, which is a first for me. I'm, I was invited to give a lecture in London this past winter, and I'd never been asked to do that before, and it was lots of fun writing a lecture. Um mm. And I'm self-publishing it as a pamphlet, and um, and it I'm with the copy left symbol, not the mm. copyright, but the copy left symbol. And just yesterday, I went out and bought um, tools to bind it with. It will be very tiny, very a sort mm. of humble. Um, object to hold in one's hands. Um, and I'm going to sew the binding. So I'm really, I'm, this is my project that I'm sort of, um, that feels like it's calling upon my gumption right now to, to dive in and make these pamphlets. How can we get a copy? (laughs) (laughs) I, I will, I think in a, 
in a week or ten days, <laughs> um, I may have copies, and I will. Uh, um, I will certainly let you know. But um, the the pamphlet is called "The Fortress and the Fool," and um, and people will be able to contact me for copies or inquiries at and the fool at Verizon.net. All right. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks a lot. Thanks again, Leah Cohen, for sharing time with us, talking about your book, No Book But the World. And uh, we wish you the best of luck on your new, uh, your new venture. Thank you so much. Can't wait to see it. 